Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Hello and welcome to Money Bee Week. This is Steve Grosser with Sarah Krause, Paul Reed, and Eric Holm. And today there's only one story we're talking about. It's Bill Gross leaving PIMCO. More after this. Hi, I'm Lex Friedman. I run my own business called Podlexing. So I know from experience, hiring new employees can be tough. With so many job boards out there, how can you know which one will produce the best talent? Realistically, to fill the position fast and with the perfect candidate, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can do it with a single click with ZipRecruiter.com. ZipRecruiter.com lets you post to more than 40 job sites at once. ZipRecruiter.com also posts your job on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Just post once and watch the qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. You can screen applicants, rate them, and hire the right people fast. Try ZipRecruiter free right now and find out why it's been used by over 100,000 businesses. And right now, listeners of this program can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash WSJ. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WSJ. One more time, to try ZipRecruiter for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WSJ. So what was like – I want to get you the, the reaction that you guys had because you, you were – both Paul and uh, Sarah and Eric were in early this morning when you know the press release passed, you know, came over the tape and uh, you know Bill Gross was leaving PIMCO, the firm he founded, what, 40-some-odd years ago? Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. The the three of us who bothered to show up early in the office <laughs> were very. Well, we were all very shocked. And, and I, you, the, someone who sits near us saw it on the tape just before us, and we started saying, "What? What?" And what? the interesting thing I think was not just that he was leaving, because that in and of itself is monumental enough, right. but actually where he was going, because it is so much smaller than what you're used to seeing and what he's used to managing in terms of scale at Pimco. Yeah, I mean, you you, you were talking about this right when I got in. I mean. One, his fund, the fund he managed at PIMCO, is bigger than all of Janice's funds. Is that correct? Yes, it's a significant difference. And Janice is known sort of primarily historically for equities work, whereas PIMCO obviously is the bond giant um, that we all know today. It, it, I, what, what does this mean? I mean, you know, what's your sense of the, like what this means for PIMCO going forward? I mean, this seems like in some ways, you know, this has been building for a long time. I mean, you know, we've been, you know, ever since... Uh, Muhammad Al Alarian uh, left the firm. When was that? That was January. January. It comes January. at the end of what has certainly been a, a bit of a tumultuous year for them. And in January, you saw sort of two announcements: one um, immediately following Alarian's departure, and then a second one that named a bench of six deputy CIOs. The idea, you know, sort of being that they show sort of branching out in terms of asset classes. You have Virginia Mazenov in London. Um, you have Andrew Balls in London as well. So you're spreading not only the sort of asset class specialty, but also the geographic footprint sort of showing the leadership um, spread out globally, but certainly that's a different structure than what they had had historically. Who is, and I guess the other question is, who's going to replace him? And I mean, and how do you, I mean, that's, not, I think, a much bigger question that we'll be seeing, but how do you replace Bill Gross, and who are the likely candidates, I guess, at this point? Yeah, well, that's the big question that everybody is waiting to to get a final answer for. I mean, there are certainly sort of more than a handful of potential options. Uh, that bench of deputy CIOs, I think, would be an obvious place to look for who might be next, um, although you could look to the current, you know, sort of other managers they're in or even external candidates. I mean, it would suggest, given how quickly a subsequent decision is going to be made, that it would likely be an insider. But again, um, time will tell. 
Right. And, and in fact, by the time some people are listening to this, there may be news already. Yeah. But uh, our colleagues at the Journal are reporting that El Arian certainly is not coming back. He Remember, uh, PIMCO, of course, is owned by Allianz. He, El Arian still works at Allianz, um, but he is, uh, he is not apparently coming back to PIMCO, which is the first question that people started asking after they said, oh, Janice, really? That was sort of the third what. People said, what, Janice? And then they said, well, is El Arian coming back? And it turns out, according to our colleagues, that is not the case. You know, the, the, the thing I find most interesting is not necessarily that he left because it was obvious after El Arian left that there were, there were personality clashes going on at PIMCO. Let's put it that way, right? What I find interesting is that they were ready to fire him. And it's like this, is, this guy is PIMCO. He started the firm. Everyone knows him. Everyone, Bill Gross, Pimco, the two things go together. I, I wonder how much of this was more than just the personality clash. How much of this was the performance of the funds, people pulling money out, the bond market. Look, Bill Gross, very smart guy, very bright guy. He had a 30-year bull run in bonds to at his back. And bonds have done well this year. We, I'm not saying they haven't done well. But I wonder how much of this was – when you're on top and your performance is unassailable, you can get away with pretty much anything you want. I mean, that's all the story on Wall Street. It's, um, in a lot of places. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of places. You know, but when your performance is not so great, that's when people start griping about you. And we look, we saw this uh, at the New York Times. They got rid of somebody with an abrasive attitude. Well, if the performance was better, we should be gone. You see this in sports all the time. Uh, I, I just – these things sort of pop into my head during the morning. Uh, you saw Don Imus when he was on top of the world. That guy was – could be terrible. But once his ratings weren't so good and he was doing things on the other people and like, they got rid of him. I wonder how much of this was the performance as opposed to just the personality clash. Yeah, and I think you saw a lot of things coming to head for them, you know, sort of throughout this year. You had the leadership changes that, mm-hmm. you know, maybe, you know, sort of there was rumors and, and reports of tension prior to that and tension that you sort of now in retrospect see building throughout the year as performance is simultaneously suffering. Um, and, and by the way, when we say performance, Sarah, it's the outflows, right? The, the performance of the fund, was it? Was, I mean, was, the, the performance okay, itself. Right? No, the performance of of the flagship fund did suffer yeah. um, throughout. Okay, this I year, was under yeah. the impression that it was, it was doing better lately. Lately, it has okay. done better, right. but that was something that you know, sort of, you had a period of outflows in the taper tantrum last year that began, continued into this year. Performance itself did sort of dip, though it has been better in recent months. Um, but you sort of have all these things coming to a head at once, and I think that this is sort of the you know, sort of uh, some of the fallout from it. I mean, and I also don't think you can necessarily ever sort of separate performance and, you know, the personality. I mean, if, if you're – if people will tolerate because they don't feel like they can do without you if your performance is always there. But as soon as that dips and you keep with the same personality um, and, and there's a lot of tensions in, in, the, in the, you know, the workplace and things like that are happening, it's it, – the first question, you know, people start raising is can we, you know, survive without – that person happened, and that's what happens in the sports world, right? And you know, and it seems to be happening here, and it happens 
you know, all over Wall Street. One thing I think that will be interesting, though, in, in sort of looking for a potential successor, I mean, one person that has been tipped is Daniel Vaskin, um, who's now a deputy CIO. But his experience has been sort of he's worked in alternatives. He has sort of a, a broader background as well. So I think it will be interesting to see sort of who they pick and, and what background that person has and what and what that says about PIMCO. Yeah, future, and right? their direction going forward, because they have been very clear that they're sort of trying to diversify between, you know, beyond bonds. But they haven't really gained a, as much traction there as I think that they would have liked to by now. So it'll be interesting to see what they look for in a successor. Yeah, they brought in Neil Kashkari um, a few years ago uh, to try to build up their stocks, right? Mm. Um, and now he's he's actually running for governor of California. Um, the the other question too is it's not just you know Bill Gross founded this company. I mean the other thing too is how much of the face of the company he was. I mean he is you know he is all over TV talking about TV and stuff like that, and that's a huge sort of void I think that is going to be difficult because Pimco is a, you know incredibly successful firm with a deep bench. And but I mean, you know, you're not just trying to replace his performance. You're also trying to, you know, replace, you know, uh, you know him as a market as the, yeah. you know, the face of your firm, the marketing of your firm. Yeah, I I think it was it was always kind of awkward to have El Arian up there also as the 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 co-chief and the co-face of the firm. It just and this is just my personal perception. It didn't hurt anything, but I just it just always seemed kind of awkward to me that they would have El Arian. Out there sometimes like, well, this guy is also the face of the firm and it seemed like they had to push that uh, that idea on people as bright as he was. I'm not, I don't think – I'm not trying to take away anything is, from him. Is. is. Right, right. Well, was at Pimple. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as bright as he is, I'm not trying to take anything away from him. It just always seemed like they had to kind of try to push that idea. Oh, here's another guy who can be the face I think, of the I think firm. it's a smart business move though, isn't it? I mean like you never want to be built on just one person. And the other you problem is have, that – And let's they tried to do it with right, Neil right. Cash Carey. Let's not forget. Forget though that sometimes Bill Gross could be a little weird. I mean, to take <laughs> nothing away from the the decades of his performance, but I mean, uh, the guy could be a little nutty at times. His, his letters were. He would talk about his cat watching him come out of the shower. <laughs> yeah. He would he would compare the rating agencies to hookers yeah. with their tramp stamps. Who I believe was his yeah, quote. Was he, a great he, one. He, yeah, he also Paul had dug a, up some other great ones that are on the site. I the think one it was about, like another one about tipping, you know, uh, waitresses at diners. The, the the one about sneezing was. Written. Right, right. He, that was the most yeah. uncomfortable thing I ever had to read in, a, in an investment letter. Right, right, right. And you'll have to, folks, you'll have to go to the Money Beat blog and, and look that one up yourselves. We don't need to get into that here. But yeah, he, uh, he was colorful. But it's been interesting. They've tried, you know, since appointing the sort of six deputy CIOs, which, you know, in, in itself seems like a sort of wide range of folks. Um, they really have tried to sort of integrate them into the commentary that you see, the appearances on CNBC, the Twitter feed. You know, it, you, mm-hmm. you see them sort of trying to, to reshape who the face of PIMCO really is. And, and perhaps now we know maybe that was intentional in a way to, right. you know, sort of make sure that there's not this dip in confidence in the firm if – you know, sort of Bill Gross, who has long been associated as the face of the firm, were to depart. Ideally, Which though, I would happened. suspect they would have wanted a little more time to get those people out there before they suddenly became the only faces. I get, you know, that that's the the, the whole question of timing is, is interesting too. And right, right, right. I don't know, Sarah, you might have better insight into this. Yeah, you know, our, our colleagues, know. of course, are reporting that uh, he was he he quit before he could be fired. Right, but I mean. Was was how long was he looking for a new job? Did he know he was leaving? Did they know they were firing? You know, we're reporting that they were ready to fire him tomorrow. I mean, how long was this all 
like really, really in the works that he knew he was going to go. They knew they were going. How long did it take well, him to there find was someone a else? Headline that crossed, to hire him? Yeah, Paul. Yeah. That's that said that he was warned months ago that he st- had to. Yeah, stop they gave being him the ultimatum. Shape up, version. I mean, I think yeah. I think there's a lot of writing on the wall, even if it hadn't moved. But I mean, it seemed, like I think they, I think what ha- the actual it seems. And this could be, you know, specul, you know, spe- somewhat speculation, but it seems like the actual decision to resign maybe happened a little bit faster, given just looking at like Pimco's website, the fact that his letter is still atop their their website, pictures things, all he, over the homepage, still all over the homepage. That you know, the the, re- the resignation might have come a little bit quicker, but this had been in the works. Uh, for a while. And it's interesting. You've seen, I mean, wh- when there were early reports of tensions between Alarian and, and Gross, you saw uh, the parent Allianz, you know, sort of be quick to defend and say, you know, we stand behind Gross, we do this, you know, but it, that has sort of obviously evolved over time. And I think that, you know, sort of the today's announcements and questions about timing sort of underscore how that relationship may have evolved in recent months. The other question now is, what does this mean to Janice? I mean, Janice was a fund that, you know, I mean, I think, re- I don't want to say it's heyday, but was did great during the tech boom in the you know late nineties, um, not so well when the bubble. Say burst. not so much when the bubble burst. And yeah. then it was you know when it got hit by a you know it was one of the uh, mutual fund firms that got hit by the t- uh, the market timing scandal of the uh, you know decade ago. Um, what does this mean to them? And and the fact that like the other thing too is you know Bill Gross is coming to him. He is a huge name. Their stock popped. To today on it, mm. but he also people were also exiting his you know total return fund you know who's what sixty over sixty billion in um, yeah. redemptions in the last this year. Or? I think to a degree, sort of you know time will tell, but I think that initially, I mean, this is a firm that's been trying to diversify. You know, sort of similar to the way Pimco was trying to move away from being just pure bonds, they were trying to really diversify, get away from just traditional equities. Their fixed income assets under management have increased. So if you're trying to do that, this is a this would seem as a big win. You know, it's a it's a well known investor. He's taking over a brand new fund for you. I mean, another thing to keep in mind, I think, is that funds have to build track records before they can you know, sort of make it onto consultants lists and before investors can put meaningful amounts of money into it. So I think that that's sort of where the time will tell point comes in, is that he actually now has to deliver. He has to you know, sort of show that that performance that he's known for is something that he can replicate elsewhere. Does his name, you know, quicken those steps to get onto... You know, or you know, it may, may allow him to skip the sort of performance. I, no, I think it gets you in the door to a degree, but you know, you're so, if you're reporting back to a large pension funds investment committee, for example, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. You have to be able to show the numbers consistently. Um, so I think that that's something to to watch going forward. I think that there are investors that have more flexibility to immediately allocate money, but but others, particularly in particularly in the institutional space, have have constraints. Well, and also, I mean, whatever his performance is, and however much money he brings. Assuming that he maintains more or less his level of public exposure, uh, you're often going to hear the words Janice is Bill Gross, Bill Gross from Janice, Janice is Bill, you know, Bill Gross from Janice says <laughs> you're going to hear the words Janice a lot more than you did. So regardless of what his actual performance is. Just from a PR marketing standpoint, this is kind of a coup for Janice. Does it make the uh, company worth thirty percent more than it was uh, at eight twenty nine? Forty percent more, right? Yeah, it's, I think it was up somewhere in that range. Yeah. Uh, last I, I don't. I can't imagine that it does. But look, people out there were buying the stock; they thought it did. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's a huge number. That's a huge number for one dude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how much in inflows can he truly generate, right. especially given what? Uh, how much saying? was Pimco down? 
Well, Allianz, well, Allianz is down. Yeah. Allianz. Um, That's what I meant. Sorry. You know, I – It was single digits, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. yeah. Allianz is on – Pimco is huge. But Allianz, Allianz is, is even yeah. huger. Right. 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 Though it is it worth huge. noting that, I mean, PIMCO does contribute to Allianz's performance. I mean, oh, it is a meaningful, yes. you know, contributor. Now, here's the thing. If there were so many outflows, why I, – I, I'm tr- having trouble reconciling the idea that people were fleeing his fund and yet this is a coup for Janice. So help me reconcile those two things. Uh, I don't know if it can be reconciled. Right? No. I mean, I think it's a good point to raise, Eric. I don't know if it can be reconciled. I, although I think, I mean, I think that to a degree you get it. I mean, he let's not forget that he does have a background as a as a very successful investor, um, and, and I think that some of that has gotten lost in a lot of bad PR um, recently. But I, I think that it's worth and talk bearing. about his cat recently. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's worth bearing in mind that you know he does. He's not Bill Gross, you know, in the way that we think of him for nothing. Um, and yeah. I think that that yeah. is is a big. You know, sort of part and, of and, and while the outflows were very large, I mean, it's still how much was he managing? Two hundred billion, roughly. Like north mm-hmm. of that, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, the, the flagship fund alone was more yeah. than two hundred billion. So I, I think the way it gets reconciled is not only do you see what his performance is at Janus, what he does, but you you look at if the bond market turns, like everyone says, in this thirty-year bull run ends. How does he manage that? If he really can manage that, then and I know this is going to be a uh, Basically, a, a, Wasn't he turning- a no constraints uh, fund, right? He can mm-hmm. invest- unconstrained. It, unconstrained, right? If he can figure out how to pivot with the market and still make his his clients money, that will be the thing that kind of you know answers your question. I think wasn't he also moving in a lot into sort of like options on treasure futures on treasuries and stuff like that? He, he was trying to divert. Yeah, yeah. Was, bonds weren't a lot of derivatives, right? Yeah, so essentially, like you know, which is. Cheaper, not you know, not as costly, and yeah, also Pimco coined the sort of new neutral. Yeah, earlier this year, right? So, um, I you know, I guess that's. A, I mean, I guess the one just quickly, Paul. You had a good piece early this week, just because well, volatility you, has seemingly returned to the market. Seemingly, or uh, or is this a head fake? Uh, you know, you know me, man. I'm always looking for the the next sign of the apocalypse. Uh, which will come on October 12th when The Walking Dead returns. We'll do the recaps for Speakeasy, by the way, if folks are interested. Uh, but th- this can week – please, can you please watch mention Money Beat? <laughs> I, I mentioned Money Beat earlier. I said you had to go to read my PIMCO post on, on Money Beat about – you know, I, I, I plug Money This is Money Beat. What are you talking about? Uh, anyhow, yeah, you know, you, the, the market this week has been, been very interesting. A lot of down days, a lot of up days. The Dow – I'm trying to see where the Dow is now. It looks like it's close to 100 points. If the Dow – finishes up 100 points today, every day this week, it would have been up or down more than 100 points, uh, three down, two up. And, you know, you are seeing, whereas before the, the certainly the equities market was basically Lake Placid, uh, now it is, it is looking like a, a more stormy sea. And it's not just equities. I mean, you're seeing a lot of movement. Small caps especially are doing worse. The Russell 2000 is... Before today, it was down about 8.5% from its year high. Uh, crude is down. Gold is down. Treasuries are doing well. The dollar is having a, just a crazy run. You are starting to see the markets, I think, split along the lines of people just trying to figure out, well, if we're going to lose the Fed, what's going to do well? What's not going to do well? Where do we go? Where do we not go? If Europe is weak, what do I do? If China is weak, what do I do? The U.S. is doing okay. Maybe I should be you – know, you're starting to see the market – 
try to figure out what a, a post-QE3 world is going to look like and whether it's still going to be as easy a thing for them. I, I, I think. I think that's what you're starting to see. But on the other hand, to take the, the, the view that has been what has happened over the last – every single like time right. this year we have a dip. Right. And then this is what you got into. You, met, you, know, you make the point very well in the, your post is emerging markets, small caps, tech um, – you know, high yield. Right. The, those are the ones that always get pulled back. Right. All, all and, the all and, the typical and then, and then, canaries. And, and then as soon as like you know you sort of get like a little bit like down about five, six, seven percent. Right. Uh, you know the buyers come soaring back in. I mean, this is like in the story for the last couple of years. And one of these days, it's just it's not going. The bounce back's not going to happen. It's going to keep you know right uh, going. You're but, seeing you're seeing all the usual canaries are, are choking. And everyone sees them. I mean, everyone knows they're you know they're they're talking emerging markets, small caps, uh, high yield. That's one too, man. Junk bonds, which have had just you can't even call them high yield as a euphemism because they're not yielding anything high yeah, yeah, anymore. That's true. Um, <laughs> that's a very very, you know, very good point. But I I just think too when it's all the same things and people see them, they're so used to it, and eventually they do buy the dips. And and you can if you look at the Dow this year. You can almost draw a line at the low points, and every time it dips down, uh, you know, three, four percent, whatever the number is, bounces back, bounces back. The thing I think you want to keep an eye out for now, and I don't know what the answer to this is, but I'm just saying the the thing that would kind of signify that this might be different than other times would be if that that big dip, that big fall, comes from somewhere else that you weren't expecting. Because it's always the thing that what, the shock is when you're not expecting it. When everyone's expecting it and everyone's looking at high yield, everyone's looking at small caps, they can manage it. The market can always manage it. However bad things are, if the market understands it and knows it's coming, they can manage it. It's when, the, when something hits the market out of left field that the market doesn't manage it. I haven't seen that thing hit yet, and I don't know what it would be, but that would be the thing to me that would say this is more than just the normal dip and the normal buy-the-dip reaction in the market, which I imagine you'll get. You're getting it today in stocks. You know, do I think things are, are, are horribly maladjusted in the capital markets? Yes, I do. Do I think that situation is going to change anytime soon? Not really. I think it's going to change. I, I don't think it's going to come soon, though. I, I, you're still going to have the Fed pumping, you know, keeping rates at zero. You, you know, the, actually, the interesting one now that you want to talk about it will be the ECB. The ECB will be interesting. They have talked a big game. Whether the Germans actually let them play a big game, I think, is is a really interesting thing to keep an eye on. Well, what effect will that have on the market, though? Just more easy money. Yeah. Well, well I, I think the market has been buying in anticipation of the Fed pumping a lot of money into the system, kind of as a counterweight. ECB, as a counterweight, yeah, the ECB. I'm sorry, as a counterweight to the Fed. The Fed kind of eases its way out. The ECB eases its way in, and everything stays copacetic. The interesting thing will be if the ECB cannot put as much money into the system as they're as they've they've led the markets to believe because the Germans won't let them. Now, Paul, well, let me ask you this: you've you you were opposed to QE and QE two, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I don't think it helps. So, so yes, so I think should it's, the you know, ECB have eased earlier, or should they ease now, or should they not be easing at all? Because look, the, 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 the central banks are going to ease, right? They see that as their only path. They're going to do it. I don't think that's the right prescription. I think what should happen, and I know nobody else wants this, I understand this would be a terrible thing, is let the markets clear. 
the central bank should not be underwriting the markets. They should be maintaining a, a neutral rate of interest and they should be lending at a penalty and let the markets clear. Let the dust settle and then let us all pick ourselves up again and start over. Nobody but nobody wants that. And, and you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say it. But if you actually let it happen, I, I would probably be against it, too, because it would be horrible. And the, and, and the other it's thing, easy for me to say because I don't think it's going right, to happen. Right, right, I know it's but, not going to happen. And also the other thing too is it's, it's not – that's not the mandate of the Fed. So – Well, I mean is it is it or isn't it? No, I mean, it's not. If you ask current Fed people who run the Fed, they'll tell you no. If you ask say William McChesney Martin who ran the Fed in the 50s, he might say something different. I, I, I think the mandate of the Fed is very, is very clear. Price control, maximum employment. And then you know, if you take steps that are going to, you know, and that's their that's their job. They're trying; they need to do that. Well, and we don't have Phil Izzo here. He would certainly weigh in on this. We I know, but but, yeah. I mean, but is I, their I, third I, I, mandate to underwrite the markets? Their 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 mandate. The, the problem is, and this is the limit of you know monetary policy, mm-hmm. and this is the failure of the government. We talk about it, um, you know, all the time. Is you know, the reality is we should have probably had. You know, the governments, the politicians across Europe, the U.S., across the world probably taking more action in terms of their stimulus. They left it all to the Fed. The Fed has limited abilities to do it. They only have monetary controls and that means they oftentimes have to use the markets to try to pump money into the system um, and get people you know, to, you know, to stimulate the economy. And, it, and it's not necessarily the most um, effective or, you know, way of doing it. But that's, what the, the, that's the tools they have. They can't, you know, you know, give a billion, you know, a trillion dollars in 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 stimulus. They don't, you know, that's what Congress can do, um, and, you know, in in programs that you know get people actually working. The Fed can't do that. Um, I think, you know, right there is you know a good place to end it. Yeah, because I was about to go off for another eight minutes. So thank let's... you for uh, uh, thank you for joining us. This has been Steve Grosser with Sarah Krause, Paul Vigna, and Eric Holm.